Good morning, church. Reading of the scripture today is Romans chapter 11, verse 1 to 6. And the Lord is honored when we stand and read his word. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you, know, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I'm alone, I'm left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to Baal. So to, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace will no longer be grace. You might sit now. And let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we praise you and give you thanks for giving us a, a glorious day, a new day. Father, we recognize that you are sovereign through everything, Lord. And uh, Father, we just Rejoice in just the knowing that you know every single name of the ones that you have chosen. Father, we know that you are the one who guides us and protects us as we walk in your counsel. Heavenly Father, uh, but as we face, like Pastor said, our, the situations of uh, the nation, Father, there is anxiety there. Your word tells us to seek the kingdom of God first. And Lord, as, as we do that, Lord, we humble hearts. Uh, sometimes we feel like we have failed. Sometimes we feel uh, that anxiety, that overwhelming um, disbelief of what's going on, Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will comfort us today and every day. And to know that you have overcome because you, you have been through all that. I just can go back to all the Gospels, Lord. And also the book of Acts. And I can see how you were persecuted. The church was persecuted. The early church was persecuted, Lord. So we are no difference, Lord. And uh, we should be a good year because... Um, These are times that we need to recognize that your coming is near. And Lord, we need to have a, a heart of servanthood, Father, and faithfulness. Especially, Lord, when we seek to honor you, Lord, in our work. Help us, Father, to be a prayerful church. Give us the desire to pray for our leaders also, Heavenly Father, especially those they are appointed by you because we know that you are the one who 
set kings and take down kings. You are the, the all-powerful God that will never leave us or forsake us. So, Father, we look up to you, Lord, and we need comfort from you, Heavenly Father. Help us to, to find peace and calm in this, in, this, uh, um, in these times, Lord. And now, Father, I pray for Cynthia, Lord. We know how um, words cannot describe what she's going through, Father, but we see our sister, our little sister, Lord, uh, stronger than ever by all the brothers and sisters, Lord. And we know, Father, that as when we grieve together, Father, the, the, the love and the power is, is stronger, Lord. So I pray that you will strengthen her heart, her family, Lord, and uh, to know that there is a God that is watching over her and, and the strength of the Heavenly Father. Give her peace, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. of God. Okay? So we believe in the sovereignty of God. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God until an election that seems maybe outside his control? Or do we believe he is still sovereign? And no matter how this election turns out, even if it turns out in ways that one candidate wins that you may support or does not win, what has that to do with the church? Christians did their civic duty. Many of them went out and they voted their conscience. Others voted perhaps out of selfishness or party loyalty. What has that to do with the church? No president, senator, congressman, or judge will ever be seated in January that caught God by surprise. His sovereign power, his divine purpose controls all things, and should the Supreme Court of the United States overturn the current status? What has that to do with the church? If Democrats take the Senate or not, if Republicans win the House or not, what has that to do with the church? Now, I ask that question not because those issues won't affect the church. They do. Depending on who controls which branches of office is going to drastically impact on the, how the government is going to treat the church in the coming years. It's not wrong for Christians to consider how these elections go, whether or not corruption has affected the outcome or whether... Everything has been legitimate. I've not asked those things, whether those will affect an individual Christian or even if those things will affect the corporate body of Christ, because they will. But what has that to do with the church? You see, we have studied in our study of Romans so far that whether persecution or plague or prosperity comes, the church must carry on its ministry. The church's responsibility for God doesn't change 
whether the church is in North Korea or Nigeria or Nicaragua or New York. We all stand before God alone to answer for how we have ministered and worked to advance his kingdom. Unlike Israel in the Old Testament, the church as the people of God must live for the glory of God under his kingship and under his dominion no matter who's in control here on earth. The message of chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans is that message. God raised up a people to bring forth his message of hope and salvation to a world separated from him. He did so that men, women, boys and girls might come to know him and experience him and those that are destined for eternal life will spend eternity with him. And so our theme from this passage states this morning that the remnant saved by God comes by grace alone. Now, I bet you that caught you by surprise. I bet you didn't know the sermon today was about grace, did you? Just because everything that we've talked about so far was about grace, and we sang about was about grace. But the remnant saved by God comes by grace alone, not because of anything that any person has done or their ethnicity or anything else. And that's what we've seen over the course of the past two months as we've looked at chapters 9 and 10 here in the book of Romans. But sometimes when we take a chapter and we break it into sections like we have done with our sermons, then we miss the larger picture. We get the, the small, you know, week-by-week pictures, but we don't necessarily see it all as one whole which is the way that it would have been given to the early church. That's how they would have read it. They would have read chapter 9, 10, and 11 as one whole thing, not as separate individual parts like what we have been doing. So when we look at the passage today, I am going to try to connect chapters 9 and 10 together with this opening part of chapter 11. And in doing so, I want you to see that, the, the, that in chapter 9, it begins with the sorrow of Paul that shows Paul's compassion for God's people. The sorrow of Paul shows that his heart cares about God's people. <clears throat> We miss the point of the chapter if we focus only on the issues of election that come in the latter part of that as Paul uses those, uh, that discussion uh, in chapter 9 to remind us of what he said in chapter 8 about election, that those that God foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he, called, he justified, he glorified. So if we only focus on the issues of election, we forget Paul's deep 
sorrow, as he expresses it there in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And when I preached on that passage, I reminded you that that should be ours as well. That we, like Paul, for the people who surround us, we should have that same sorrow and unceasing anguish. Can that be said of you? Are you burdened for the lost? Still, in spite of Paul's great sorrow and his unceasing anguish with which he begins this whole section, his emotions do not cloud his understanding of God's character and nature when it comes to the issue of salvation. Yes, he's burdened for his ethnic people. He's concerned deeply and anguishes for them, but it does not hinder his ability to reflect on what God is doing in the larger picture of salvation. Just as we said about the mission moment, that it is important for us to be concerned about the issues that we face, but God is doing a worldwide work in missions. So let's see how that works out in chapter 9 as we prepare to look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 11. Notice first how God saves because of his purpose alone. That's what Paul is, is focusing our thoughts to. God's salvation is not based on ethnicity. It is not based upon anything except for God's eternal purpose, what God planned before the foundations of the world were even set in place, before any human being ever stepped onto this planet. God's purpose was at work. I hope you deeply care about the eternal destiny of your family, of your friends, of your neighbors, of the people at your job, of people in your school. And I pray that you are not so trapped by life's issues that you lose sight of the Great Commission. You need to share the gospel and you need to share it powerfully and convincingly and regularly. And as you do, remember, you're not the one that's going to save anyone. See, that's what, that's what Paul reminds us in the midst of this. Even as we passionately share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ out of the sorrow and the anguish of our hearts, we need to know that it is not what we do that will ever save any individual. God is the one who saves, and God alone. We should want God to save the people closest to us. We should want him to save our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. The people of our community, the people of our country. Whether that country is Canada, Cameroon, Cambodia, or Center City, New York. No matter where we live. But never let that keep you from sharing the gospel with the whole world. That's why we had the mission moment this morning, to remind us that God is working all things according to his eternal purpose, so that people from every nation and every language 
when we gather together around his throne. And what we talked about this morning in Sunday school, the fullness of what God has planned from eternity past until Christ returns. Paul had to remember that as well, and that's why in verses 6 and 7, he writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, now remember, why is Paul wording it this way? Because he has just said that he has great anguish and sorrow in his heart for his kinsmen, for those who are, 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 you know, his Jewish race. He is concerned about them, deeply concerned about them. But he's reminding us here that God didn't save any Jew because they descended from Abraham. God saved some, and we see that in chapter 11, to fulfill his purpose. Whether that some was Jacob or Joseph or Judah, God ordained that they would serve his kingdom and his eternal purpose. God shared that eternal purpose in his promise that Adam and to Abraham. So notice then that God saves because of his promise alone. Because of his purpose alone, but also because of his promise alone. God, again, does not save anyone because they were born to any certain ethnicity or any particular religious group. Think about that. Did God save Isaac because he was a son of Abraham? No. Because Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Let's not go there. But he had many sons. But only one of those sons was a child of promise. No one is saved because they are a descendant of Abraham. Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And as we studied that passage, we saw that only one of those sons was saved. They were not saved because they were Abraham's and Isaac's descendants. They were saved because of the promise that God gave to Rebekah that the elder would serve the younger. God intended to save always according to his eternal purpose given in his eternal promise. And so as we look at what the scripture says about Jacob and Esau in verses 10 and 11. We read, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, it's not because they were Isaac's child or Abraham's child that they were saved. They were saved because God had had uh, given that promise that Isaac 
would be the one through whom God would send forth the Messiah, and Jacob would be the one through whom God would send forth his Messiah. So God knew his eternal purpose, and he shared it in an eternal promise, a promise given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, passed on through Noah, and then on to Abraham, and to Isaac, and Jacob, and on through Moses, David, and all the rest. You and I have a great responsibility to share the gospel. We must always bear in mind, though, that the people to whom we are sharing that gospel, that God is at work. And they may be close to us as the Jews were to Paul. But to remember that God is the one who is doing the saving. It is not you. It is not me. God saves because of his purpose through his promise alone. But Paul shares a third truth in this uh, ninth chapter that deals with salvation. That in spite of his own personal sorrow for his ethnic peoples, he wanted us to notice that God saves because of his power alone. His purpose, his promise, and his power. I want to stress this point because many individuals like Joel Osteen want you to think that if you try hard enough, if you have enough faith, if you believe hard enough, God has to do what you tell him to do. You know how foolish that sounds? The God who created the universe just by the word of his power. The one who is timeless has to be your slave. Do what you tell him to do. Does that sound right? Of course not. God bows to no one. You cannot manipulate him with tears or browbeat him with commands. God is not a genie in the lamp of Aladdin that you just kind of rub, and when he comes out, you command him to do whatever it is you want. He is omniscient, and he is all-powerful El Shaddai. He does not act or save even with our heartfelt, powerful prayers, even the prayers of the Apostle Paul. As we've learned often in our study of this book of Romans, God is God, you and I are not. So in the final verses of chapter 9, Paul recognizes that salvation that comes through the Jews to the Gentiles comes alike based on God's power to save. Verses 24 and 25, put it this way, even us whom he has called, whether Jew or Gentile, even us who is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Salvation comes by God's power to save. And he has that power to save. You and I do not have power to save, but God does. He can take the lowliest person. He can take the person who seems to have the hardest heart. And he has the power to transform and change that life. And that's why the Apostle Paul, looking at the hard hearts of his ethnic people, still prayed, God, do your mighty work. 
Break those hard hearts. Bring them to you. Because he knew that it was the power of God unto salvation through the gospel. And so we must proclaim that truth. Chapter 9 helps us see that while Paul's sorrow showed his compassion for his ethnic people, he still understood that God saves because of his eternal purpose given through his eternal promise by his omnipotent power. To him be all honor, praise, and glory now and evermore. Two great reasons for things that we should be doing. We should be praying and we should be proclaiming. Because we know that God saves. Chapter 9 tells us he is not saving because this person comes from that race or that group of people. And let me correct what I just said because I don't believe there are multiple races. One race, one ethnic group. God does not save because of ethnicity, never has and never will. God saves because he is God. And he has the power to change hearts and to defeat the enemy and open eyes to see the glory. And that's what chapter 10 leads us into. You see, it is in chapter 10 that we learn that the supplication of Paul shows Paul's concern for God's people. His sorrow of chapter 9 leads Paul into prayer in chapter 10. God, I know that you have power to save. Therefore, God, I will pray for salvation. I will pray for the Jews. Though I know that their hearts right now are hard, I will pray for them. In chapter 10 or 9, Paul focuses on God's sovereignty. But then in chapter 10, he turns to us and he speaks to us of our responsibility. Though God is sovereign, God has ordained means by which he works in this world. And so he has called us to pray and he's called us to proclaim. And that's what chapter 10 has its focus on. Look at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He doesn't look at their hard hearts. He doesn't look at the persecution that they are doing against the church of Jesus Christ. He looks at God and he says, you have the power And I'm going to pray according to your power and not according to what I see in this world. And that's true of every situation. Whether you like what happened in this election or not, God is still the one who is all-powerful. And our prayers 
must be directed to him in the midst of everything that's happening. So, notice that God saves through our conviction alone. Our conviction. You see, in chapter 9, is, is, is Paul focused on God ordaining salvation, God's predestining salvation. We might sit back and say, well, they're elect. <laughs> so what? God's going to save his elect and that's it. And there have been Christians in times that have done that. You know, our mission, you know, that we, we did today, our mission moment. Do you know that Protestant missions did not start with the Reformation? Oh, there was one small group, the Moravians, that did, but, but the rest of the Protestant churches didn't. And when a guy named William Carey stood up in his church almost two centuries after the events of the Reformation. And he said, we need to send missionaries to lost nations. One of the old ministers there said, sit down, young man. If God wants to save those heathen, he can do it without you. No, he can't. And no, he won't. And that's what chapter 10 is all about. God's purpose and his promise by his power does not remove human responsibility in sharing the gospel and receiving that gospel. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. So look at at Romans 10, 9 to 10. It helps us to understand But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what that verse is saying? That if you do not have a conviction that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God and that he died because of your sin, if that is not, you do not have faith that that is true, you can't be saved. Human responsibility, there must be a trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Not one person in this world will ever be saved just by election. They will be saved because God, in his electing them, used this power to open their eyes and their understanding so that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ, realize that he died in their place and that he rose from the dead so that he could give new life to them. They must believe. They must receive. You know, have you ever watched a a magic show, right? In these, these various magic shows... Uh, they have a person who gets sawn in two. And then all of a sudden, you know, they open it up and the person steps out and they are whole. And you just watch them get sawn in half. And now here they are. They are whole. Now, it is true that it's a trick box and that the magician has designed this box 
so that it looks like you're sawing them, he's sawing the person in half, but he's not really. Okay? We know that. He's, he's designed it that way. But you know what? When that assistant gets into that box, if they don't press the right levers, they're going to get sawn in two. <laughs> right? If they don't do their part, they're going to get chopped up. Well, that, in a very small way, is what the gospel says to us. God has purposed and he has planned, but you must respond. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know that he died in your place. You must call on him and ask him to forgive your sins and to come into your life and take over your life. Or you will not be saved. And that's what chapter 10 is telling us. Yes, God is sovereign. And yes, he is powerful. And yes, he has elected. But no one will ever enter heaven's pearly gates without a deep conviction that Jesus Christ died for him or her and that he physically rose from the dead so that they might receive eternal life. There are lots of people who say they believe in Jesus. They're Catholics and Protestants, Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims. And they all claim some kind of faith in Jesus. But very few believe that Jesus died in that horrible way on the cross because of their horrible sins. Because they are horrible sinners who have brought the wrath of God down upon themselves. They deserve that wrath and they should be destroyed. Few believe that he poured out his anger on Jesus Christ who stood between them and that wrath of God. They actually think that somehow God really wouldn't destroy them because they are fairly good people. And that, my friend, will never get you a mansion in heaven. God poured out his anger on Jesus Christ, his wrath on his own son, because you were that bad of a sinner. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ have accepted that truth and have fallen before the cross and thanked God that in his grace and in his mercy, that he sent his son to pay the penalty for their sin. Without that conviction of faith, there is no salvation. Such faith should be sealed in the baptismal confession, which is the second part. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That was the baptismal confession of the first century. Now, Baptism is not necessary for you to have a right standing before God. That comes by faith and by faith alone. But any individual who has true faith in Jesus Christ will not be ashamed to declare that. And that's what the early church recognized. And that's why they follow faith in Christ with baptism in his name. But Paul asks... 
If this that I've just said is true, how can they be saved without hearing the gospel? And they cannot, because God saves through his communication alone. Our conviction, but God's communication. God does not save because a Christian is a persuasive talker or preacher. God saves because his eternal word, according to verse 17, is powerful. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through Pastor Chris's preaching. Is that what it said? And hearing because, and you put the person's name in there. No. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You can talk until you're blue in the face. You can have the eloquence of Aristotle or Abraham Lincoln or Apollos in the Bible. Not one person will ever come to faith in Jesus Christ because of what you say. Only the scripture is living and powerful and able to pierce into the soul and spirit. One of the points that the Republicans made during the election cycle was that Joe Biden has made lots of promises in his 47 years as a politician. But what makes you think that he is now going to actually do something that he didn't do in those 47 years? That was part of their platform argument. Well, I don't know about Joe Biden, and I don't know that much about all the things that he has done or hasn't done. But I do know this. Only God's word is backed by God's power. So that when God speaks, you don't have to wait for it to be done. It is done. God speaks truth, and it's backed by his power, so that when he says, let there be light, there is light. His word has power. It has power to heal and power to destroy. It is able to give life, and it takes life. President Trump drew thousands of people to hear him speak at his rallies in these last weeks. But speeches aren't votes. Over the centuries, the speeches of certain people have motivated individuals or nations. For instance, World War I. Woodrow Wilson was president prior to World War well, while World War I was going on. And he kept America through his power of his words, he kept America out of the war for the first five years. At the same time, Winston Churchill took Great Britain to war in the Second World War by his voice. There's a saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anybody that's alive knows that that's not true. (laughs) You certainly can be hurt by words. They do have power. 
but only God's words always have power to change, to transform hearts, to bring salvation. Furthermore, God saves through his conditions alone. You do not set the conditions on what God must do for you to be saved. God sets the conditions. He says this, this, and this will lead to salvation. God establishes those conditions. Churches might have doctrinal statements. Evangelistic organizations might train people in methods of sharing the gospel. But only God saves. The way Paul puts it, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God reaps the harvest. And at the end of chapter 10, after he has described the need of a conviction for salvation, that person must believe, they must respond to the gospel, they must confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that it comes through the preaching of the word, and so preachers must go out, they must be sent, word must go out after he has said all of that, Paul then still points to God as the ultimate one who saves by his conditions. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul is saying that in spite of the fact that the Jewish people had been told what they must do in order to have a relationship with God, and though the message of the prophets had gone out, that did not save them. They were told they must believe. They were told they must trust in God. They were told that they must listen to his law and follow his law. The prophets confronted them when they didn't do that so that they might see their sin and repent of that sin and turn, and they didn't. Because salvation is not of man. Salvation is of God. People must respond to God's offer of salvation, yes. But God held out his hands to Judah and Israel through the prophets, and the Jews rejected that offer. And then God sent his son. And for three years, Jesus showed Judea and Galilee the power of God and what they could have if they would trust in Jesus Christ. But in the end, they crucified him. John wrote, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God's condition for salvation is that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by believing in his death in your place and in his physical resurrection by which he gives you life and that you, your heart must be his and nothing else will save you. That's his condition. Do you believe? Which brings us to our text for 
this morning. And no, I'm not going to preach a three-point sermon on this final text. But in this text, what we see is the sensitivity shows Paul's challenge to God's people. Paul's sensitivity to what God was doing, that allowed him to show his challenge to God's people. Paul began in chapter 9 discussing the sorrow that he had over the ethnic people. In chapter 10, he prayed that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now, he sensitively lays down a challenge before ethnic Israel that they turn from that rebellion and that they trust in Jesus Christ as the only means of their salvation. So Paul asks in the opening verse of this chapter, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? Remember how many times we've seen that phrase, by no means? And that's Paul's very strong way, megenita, of saying, no, may this never happen. May it never be said. So in this very powerful way, Paul denies that God has completely cut off the Jewish people from salvation. For God's eternal purpose cannot be undone. Notice then that God saves by his counsel alone. By his counsel alone. You see, I have difficulty accepting the argument that God loves Jewish people more than he loves any other people. I really do. I don't believe that that's true. I don't even believe it was true in the Old Testament that God loved the Jewish people more than any other people or that somehow they are of greater value in God's sight than someone from Ecuador or England or Ethiopia. God does not love anyone based upon their ethnicity and never has, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Rather, verse 2 states, God loves those he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And I know that many scholars will say his people here means Israel. In one way, I agree with them. But I also disagree. Because his people means elect Israel. It doesn't mean all of Israel. I don't think that when God destroyed Israel, all the Israelites in the wilderness, except Caleb and Joshua, that God was going, oh no, I have to destroy these people. I love them so much, but I have to destroy them. It was not all of ethnic Israel. It was those that he foreknew, which is the elect in Israel. In the time of the judges, God sent enemies to punish Israel's sins. Later, Assyrian Babylon became his means of destroying the people of Israel who had rejected his truth. But those ethnic Jews, whom God in the counsel of the eternal Trinity set his love upon, he did not reject And what is true, the Jews of whom Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, and the apostles are examples, as he says in this text, is also true of the elect 
from every nation. God may punish the United States of America for its arrogance and its rejection of his rule. But those he has given eternal life can never be taken out of his hand, even in this nation. If we learned anything from chapters 9 and 10, notice that God saves by his choice alone. From his eternal counsel, his choice to save those that he will. We said that whoever is president in 2021, at the beginning of this message, fulfills God's choice. There's only one vote that counts. It's not all the ballots that are being cast. There's one vote that counts, and that's God's. No one enters into authoritative governmental power Romans 13, that God did not place there. So stop bellyaching. What has that to do with the church? It is by God's choice alone. And if that's true of a human king or president, how much more is it true of divine election of those that he chose for salvation? Listen to verse 5. So too at present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Some Gentiles thought God had rejected the Jews, that he replaced them with the Gentiles, and Paul's argument is no. No, that's not true. And so he uses the illustration of Elijah and a 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to, to Baal to prove it. That even in the most wicked times, like that of Jezebel and Ahab, that God had still kept those whom he had elected for eternal life. So also notice that God saves by his conversion alone. You see, those that God elected before the foundation of the world were set in place, he will bring to faith by his gracious work. 7,000 in Israel did not bow the knees, not because they had great faith. Pay attention to what the text says. The text does not say there were 7,000 people who had great faith that they were able to withstand the persecution and the pressure from their community. What does the text say? It tells us that they were kept by God. They were kept by God. Paul, Mary Magdalene, Priscilla and Aquila, and the thousands of other Jews awakened to the truth of Jesus as their Messiah in that first century by God's grace and were converted by God's grace. That's the emphasis that Paul places here. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would not be grace. And if that was true of the Jews of the first century, 
It is also true of all the elect. You became a Christian because God graciously opened your eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And if you're hearing this message today and you have not yet been born again, God is calling you today to faith. Will you turn and be saved? Will you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Or will you harden your heart like Pharaoh did? Will you harden your heart like those Jews in the wilderness did? And will you harden your heart like those Jewish leaders of the first century did? God is calling you today. Will you hear? And will you respond? And so in conclusion, I want to ask you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, do you pray for God to reach the Jewish people with the truth concerning their Messiah? We are called to do that. We live in a highly Jewish area just north of us in Bensonhurst. Are you praying that God will bring the Jewish people that are our neighbors to Christ? Do you pray for your own ethnic groups, your own ethnic people, You pray for your nation to believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus Christ. Do we have Paul's sorrow that causes us to reach out in supplication with a sensitivity to know what God is doing and therefore how we should respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before the foundations of the world were even set in place, you chose, you elected a people so that you would have an inheritance for your son. And we have been beneficiaries of that. And I just pray, oh God, that out of your grace and out of your mercy, I pray that you will reach our neighbors to the north. The Jewish people that you have placed in our community. That they will have their eyes opened. They will see the truth that they do have a Messiah. That they don't have to continue waiting. But he has come. He has come to give them life. And I pray, Lord God, for the Irish people, the people of my ancestry, that you will reach them who once were a religious people but have now become secular like the rest of Europe. Open their hearts. Pray for the Northcuts, the Wadsworths, and the other missionaries that are working there and proclaiming that truth. And for the other ethnic groups represented in this room, for this world, oh, that the gospel might go and in the power of that gospel, men, women, boys and girls might hear and believe whether they are deaf or whether they are not.
soften their hearts and bring them to faith that they might confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. We ask it for your name's sake, for the expansion of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our closing song is a, is a call for us and a prayer to God that his kingdom come through his church to reach the world. Would you stand as we join together and sing?